Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, on our sixth part of the series, we are finishing the first whole chapter of The Wretched of the Earth. The rest of the chapters are shorter, so this was just a bit of an anomaly to begin with. This is also a little bit of a shorter episode anyway, and at the end of it, I'm going to give a brief recap of the chapter as a whole. I don't have a lot of my own thoughts really to add to it, but I think it's worthwhile to unpack in brief a lot of what's being said. With that out of the way, let's finish off this chapter with its final section. Violence in the International Context We have pointed out many times in the preceding pages that in underdeveloped regions, the political leader is forever calling on his people to fight. To fight against colonialism, to fight against poverty and underdevelopment, and to fight against sterile traditions. The vocabulary which he uses in his appeals is that of a chief of staff. Mass mobilization, agricultural front, fight against illiteracy, defeats we have undergone, victories won. The young independent nation evolves during the first years in an atmosphere of the battlefield, for the political leader of an underdeveloped country looks fearfully at the huge distance his country will have to cover. He calls to the people and says to them, Let us gird up our loins and set to work. And the country, possessed by a kind of creative madness, throws itself into a gigantic and disproportionate effort. The program consists not only of climbing out of the morass, but also of catching up with the other nations, using the only means at hand. They reason that if the European nations have reached that stage of development, it is on account of their efforts. Let us therefore, they seem to say, prove to ourselves and to the whole world that we are capable of the same achievements. This manner of setting out the problem of the evolution of underdeveloped countries seems to us to be neither correct nor reasonable. The European states achieved national unity at a moment when the national middle class had concentrated most of the wealth in their hands. Shopkeepers and artisans, clerks and bankers monopolized finance, trade and science in the national framework. The middle class was the most dynamic and prosperous of all classes. Its coming to power enabled it to undertake certain very important speculations industrialization, the development of communications, and soon the search for outlets overseas. In Europe, apart from certain slight differences, England for example was some way ahead, the various states were at a more or less uniform stage economically when they achieved national unity. There was no nation which by reason of the character of its development and evolution caused affront to the others. Today, National independence and the growth of national feeling in underdeveloped regions take on totally new aspects. In these regions, with the exception of certain spectacular advances, the different countries show the same absence of infrastructure. The mass of the people struggle against the same poverty, flounder about making the same gestures, and with their shrunken bellies outline what has been called the geography of hunger. It is an underdeveloped world a world inhuman in its poverty, but also it is a world without doctors, without engineers, and without administrators. Confronting this world, the European nations sprawl, ostentatiously opulent. This European opulence is literally scandalous, for it has been founded on slavery. It has been nourished with the blood of slaves and it comes directly from the soil and from the subsoil of that underdeveloped world. The well-being and the progress of Europe 
have been built up with the sweat and the dead bodies of Negroes, Arabs, Indians, and the yellow races. We have decided not to overlook this any longer. When a colonialist country, embarrassed by the claims for independence made by a colony, proclaims to the nationalist leaders, if you wish for independence, take it and go back to the Middle Ages. The newly independent people tend to acquiesce and to accept the challenge. In fact, you may see colonialism withdrawing its capital and its technicians and setting up around the young state the apparatus of economic pressure. Footnote 15. The apotheosis of independence is transformed into the curse of independence, and the colonial power through its immense resources of coercion condemns the young nation to regression. In plain words, the colonial power says, Since you want independence, take it and starve. The nationalist leaders have no other choice but to turn to their people and ask from them a gigantic effort. A regime of austerity is imposed on these starving men. A disproportionate amount of work is required from their atrophied muscles. An autarctic regime is set up and each state, with the miserable resources it has in hand, tries to find an answer to the nation's great hunger and poverty. We see the mobilization of a people which toils to exhaustion in front of a suspicious and bloated Europe. Other countries of the third world refuse to undergo this ordeal and agree to get over it by accepting the conditions of their former guardian power. These countries use their strategic position, a position which accords them privileged treatment in the struggle between the two blocs, to conclude treaties and give undertakings. The former dominated country becomes an economically dependent country. The ex-colonial power, which has kept intact and sometimes even reinforced its colonialist trade channels, agrees to provision the budget of the independent nation by small injections. Thus we see that the accession to independence of the colonial countries places an important question before the world. For the national liberation of colonized countries unveils their true economic state and makes it seem even more unendurable. The fundamental duel, which seemed to be that between colonialism and anti-colonialism, and indeed between capitalism and socialism, is already losing some of its importance. What counts today, the question which is looming on the horizon, is the need for a redistribution of wealth. Humanity must reply to this question, or be shaken to pieces by it. It might have been generally thought that the time had come for the world, and particularly for the third world, to choose between the capitalist and socialist systems. The underdeveloped countries, which have used the fierce competition which exists between the two systems in order to assure the triumph of their struggle for national liberation, should, however, refuse to become a factor in that competition. The third world ought not to be content to define itself in the terms of values which have preceded it. On the contrary, the underdeveloped countries ought to do their utmost to find their own particular values and methods and a style which shall be peculiar to them. The concrete problem we find ourselves up against is not that of a choice, cost what it may, between socialism and capitalism as they have been defined by men of other continents and of other ages. Of course, we know that the capitalist regime, insofar as it is a way of life, cannot leave us free to perform our work at home nor our duty in the world. Capitalist exploitation and cartels and monopolies are the enemies of underdeveloped countries. 
On the other hand, the choice of a socialist regime, a regime which is completely orientated toward the people as a whole, and based on the principle that man is the most precious of all possessions, will allow us to go forward more quickly and more harmoniously, and thus make impossible that caricature of society where all economic and political power is held in the hands of a few who regard the nation as a whole with scorn and contempt. But in order that this regime may work to good effect, so that we can in every instance respect those principles which were our inspiration, we need something more than human output. Certain underdeveloped countries expend a huge amount of energy in this way. Men and women, young and old, undertake enthusiastically what is in fact forced labour, and proclaim themselves the slaves of the nation. The gift of oneself and the contempt for every preoccupation which is not in the common interest bring into being a national morale which comforts the heart of man, gives him fresh confidence in the destiny of mankind, and disarms the most reserved observers. But we cannot believe that such an effort can be kept up at the same frenzied pace for very long. These young countries have agreed to take up the challenge after the unconditional withdrawal of the ex-colonial countries. The country finds itself in the hands of new managers. But the fact is that everything needs to be reformed, and everything thought out anew. In reality, the colonial system was concerned with certain forms of wealth and certain resources only, precisely those which provisioned her own industries. Up to the present, no serious effort had been made to estimate the riches of the soil, or of mineral resources. Thus, the young independent nation sees itself obliged to use the economic channels created by the colonial regime. It can, obviously, export to other countries and other currency areas, but the basis of its exports is not fundamentally modified. The colonial regime has carved out certain channels, and they must be maintained or catastrophe will threaten. Perhaps it is necessary to begin everything all over again, to change the nature of the country's exports, and not simply their destination, to re-examine the soil and mineral resources, the rivers, and, why not, the sun's productivity. Now, in order to do all this, other things are needed over and above human output. Capital of all kinds, technicians, engineers, skilled mechanics, and so on. Let's be frank. We do not believe that the colossal effort which the underdeveloped peoples are called upon to make by their leaders will give the desired results. If conditions of work are not modified, centuries will be needed to humanize this world, which has been forced down to animal level by imperial powers. Footnote 16. The truth is that we ought not to accept these conditions. We should flatly refuse the situation to which the Western countries wish to condemn us. Colonialism and imperialism have not paid their score when they withdraw their flags and their police forces from our territories. For centuries, the capitalists have behaved in the underdeveloped world like nothing more than war criminals. Deportations, massacres, forced labour, and slavery have been the main methods used by capitalism to increase its wealth, its gold or diamond reserves, and to establish its power. Not long ago, Nazism transformed the whole of Europe into a veritable colony. The governments of the various European nations called for reparations, and demanded the restitution in kind and money of the wealth which had been stolen from them. 
Cultural treasures, pictures, sculptures, and stained glass have been given back to the owners. There was only one slogan in the mouths of Europeans on the morrow of the 1945 V-Day. Germany must pay. Herr Adenauer? It must be said, at the opening of the Ekman trial, and in the name of the German people, asked once more for forgiveness from the Jewish people. Herr Adenauer? has renewed the promise of his people to go on paying to the state of Israel the enormous sums which are supposed to be compensation for the crimes of the Nazis. Footnote 17 In the same way, we may say that the imperialist states would make a great mistake and commit an unspeakable injustice if they contented themselves with withdrawing from our soil the military cohorts and the administrative and managerial services whose function it was to discover the wealth of the country to extract it, and to send it off to the mother countries. We are not blinded by the moral reparation of national independence, nor are we fed by it. The wealth of the imperial countries is our wealth too. On the universal plane this affirmation, you may be sure, should on no account be taken to signify that we feel ourselves affected by the creations of western arts or techniques, for in a very concrete way, Europe has stuffed herself inordinately with the gold and raw materials of the colonial countries, Latin America, China, and Africa. From all these continents, under whose eyes Europe today raises up her tower of opulence, there has flowed out for centuries toward that same Europe diamonds and oil, silk and cotton, wood and exotic products. Europe is literally the creation of the third world. The wealth which smothers her is that which was stolen from the underdeveloped peoples. The ports of Holland, the docks of Bordeaux and Liverpool were specialized in the Negro slave trade and owe their renown to millions of deported slaves. So when we hear the head of a European state declare with his hand on his heart that he must come to the aid of the poor underdeveloped peoples, we do not tremble with gratitude. Quite the contrary, we say to ourselves, it's a just reparation which will be paid to us. Nor will we acquiesce in the help for underdeveloped countries being a program of sisters of charity. This help should be the ratification of a double realization. The realization by the colonized people that it is their due, and the realization by the capitalist powers that in fact, they must pay. Footnote 18. For if through lack of intelligence, we won't speak of lack of gratitude, the capitalist countries refuse to pay, then the relentless dialectic of their own system will smother them. It is a fact that young nations do not attract much private capital. There are many reasons which explain and render legitimate this reserve on the part of the monopolies. As soon as the capitalists know, and of course they are the first to know, that their government is getting ready to decolonize, they hasten to withdraw all their capital from the colony in question. The spectacular flight of capital is one of the most constant phenomena of decolonization. Private companies, when asked to invest in independent countries, lay down conditions which are shown in practice to be unacceptable or unrealizable. Faithful to the principle of immediate returns which is theirs as soon as they go overseas, the capitalists are very chary regarding all long-term investments. 
they are unamenable and often openly hostile to the respective programs of planning laid down by the young teams which form the new government. At a pinch, they will willingly agree to lend money to the young states, but only on condition that this money is used to buy manufactured products and machines. In other words, that it serves to keep the factories in the mother country going. In fact, the cautiousness of the Western financial groups may be explained by their fear of taking any risk. They also demand political stability and a calm social climate, which are impossible to obtain when account is taken of the appalling state of the population as a whole immediately after independence. Therefore, vainly looking for some guarantee which the former colony cannot give, they insist on garrisons being maintained or the inclusion of the young state in military or economic pacts. The private companies put pressure on their own governments to at least set up military bases in these countries for the purpose of assuring the protection of their interests. In the last resort, these companies ask their government to guarantee the investments which they decide to make in such and such an underdeveloped region. It happens that few countries fulfill the conditions demanded by the trusts and monopolies. Thus, capital, failing to find a safe outlet, remains blocked in Europe, and is frozen. It is all the more frozen because capitalists refuse to invest in their own countries. The returns in this case are in fact negligible, and treasury control is the despair of even the boldest spirits. In the long run, the situation is catastrophic. Capital no longer circulates, or else its circulation is considerably diminished. In spite of the huge sums swallowed up by military budgets, international capitalism is in desperate straits. But another danger threatens it as well. Insofar as the Third World is in fact abandoned and condemned to regression, or at least to stagnation by the selfishness and wickedness of Western nations, the underdeveloped peoples will decide to continue their evolution inside a collective autarky. Thus, the Western industries will quickly be deprived of their overseas markets. The machines will pile up their products in the warehouses, and a merciless struggle will ensue on the European market, between the trusts and the financial groups. The closing of factories, the paying off of workers, and unemployment will force the European working class to engage in an open struggle against the capitalist regime. Then the monopolies will realize that their true interests lie in giving aid to the underdeveloped countries. Unstinted aid, with not too many conditions. So we see that the young nations of the third world are wrong in trying to make up to the capitalist countries. We are strong in our own right, and in the justice of our point of view. We ought, on the contrary, to emphasize and explain to the capitalist countries that the fundamental problem of our time is not the struggle between the socialist regime and them, the Cold War must be ended for it leads nowhere, the plans for nuclearizing the world must stop and large-scale investments and technical aid must be given to underdeveloped regions. The fate of the world depends on the answer that is given to this question. Moreover, the capitalist regime must not try to enlist the aid of the socialist regime over the fate of Europe, in face of the starving multitudes of coloured peoples. The exploit of Colonel Gargarin doesn't seem to please General de Gaulle, for is it not a triumph which brings honour to Europe? For some time past, the statesmen of the capitalist countries have adopted an equivocal attitude toward the Soviet Union. After having united all their forces to abolish the socialist regime, they now realize that they'll have to reckon with it. 
so they look as pleasant as they can. They make all kinds of advances, and they remind the Soviet people the whole time that they belong to Europe. They will not manage to divide the progressive forces which mean to lead mankind toward happiness by brandishing the threat of a third world, which is rising like the tide to swallow up all Europe. The third world does not mean to organize a great crusade of hunger against the whole of Europe. What it expects from those who, for centuries, have kept it in slavery, is that they will help it to rehabilitate mankind and make man victorious everywhere, once and for all. But it is clear that we are not so naive as to think that this will come about with the cooperation and the goodwill of the European governments. This huge task, which consists of reintroducing mankind into the world, the whole of mankind, will be carried out with the indispensable help of the European peoples, who themselves must realise that in the past they have often joined the ranks of our common masters, where colonial questions are concerned. To achieve this, the European peoples must first decide to wake up and shake themselves, use their brains, and stop playing the stupid game of the sleeping beauty. And that concludes this reading and the first chapter of the book. As I said at the start of the episode, I'm going to briefly cover what this chapter has been as a whole. It's gone a lot of places, so obviously the real in-depth information comes from the whole thing. But just to kind of touch on a lot of what it's saying overall, a central premise of this chapter is that colonization, more than anything else, is an uprooting of one people to replace them with something more palatable to the colonizer nation. It does not necessarily require that a colony remains a colony, because as long as the colonized people continue to act on the colonizer's terms, the colonizer gets what they want, and in fact at one point argues that in capitalism they want the colonized people to become part of the market because that is how capitalism expands. And in one sense it makes more sense for the colonized people to become independent but under the heel of capitalism in that way. Colonization in itself is a terrible violence, especially with the ways in which To uproot the previous ways of the natives, they have to be vilified. The native way of life is specifically devalued, actively reframed as kind of harmful, regressive, or undesirable, because at the end of the day, colonization is about changing the way of life and changing the systems of a society so that they will slip into the systems of the colonizer better. And it is an effective way to do this if you do your best to push away any of the practices of the natives that might undermine this approach, while replacing them with something you frame as desirable anyway, the ways of the colonizers. And this is as well in part because the colonized people will feel trapped, especially as they are enslaved and forced into situations. And when trapped, they will obviously have ambitions of being free and escaping their situation. And one aspect of colonialism is to make sure their ambitions are framed around taking the place of the colonizers, but not to upend the system to remove the ruling class, to instead have the colonized people who are being constricted want to step into a position where they have the same things as the colonizers do. 
Because if they want the same things, then they will continue to engage with the colonizing country in order to access similar resources. And of course, this whole chapter is about violence. A lot of the attempts by the colonized people to become free or to escape bonds are framed as violence in an extremely disproportionate way because violence of the colonized nation is not really being addressed. And that is both the violence of completely rewriting a society and how they function, as well as the very literal violence of enslaving them with weapons. It is not purely abstracted violence that performs colonization. There is a lot of arms involved. But even aside from that, there is the more obfuscated violence of meetings of the UN, uh, which which led to the great question of why doesn't Castro just bring a gun to the UN? He may as well. There's no real difference between what they're doing and that. So that's broadly what this chapter covered. Again, obviously, reading the whole thing will be much more helpful for getting all the details. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And you can find this show and lots of other leftist podcasts at abnormalmapping.com. There's lots of shows there about video games, movies, anime, books. Special shout out to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements, which is a Moby Dick podcast that is about to cover the final chapter of the book. Uh, It's a very good read-through one that I've been following along with, having never read Moby Dick before, and I would not have gotten through the book without that podcast. So go check it out. It's a lot of fun. And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.